Find a copy of God's wonderful word and head over to Genesis chapter 9 this morning. <clears throat> Just a reminder, the, the land is dry. All the animals have come out of the ark. Noah and his family have just worshipped the Lord, offering a, a burnt offering to the Lord. And today we'll see the Lord establish a covenant. Now in your outline, I, I did make one change. I printed earlier in the week and then wanted to make a change. So uh, everything in section four, just move up to the very beginning. And we're going to change it to just say divine obligations, right? Because I don't want you to think it's a stipulation to the covenant later. Um, so now then, let's... Let's just get into it this morning. Let's read it, and then we'll, we'll dig into it. Beginning in, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, we'll read the first 17 verses today. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, and to your hand they are delivered. Everything, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God, God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living thing that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn our attention to, to understand Genesis 9 this morning, we ask humbly for your, your guidance. We ask for your wisdom. Now open our hearts, open our minds to receive your word with clarity, with understanding. Help us to, to grasp the significance of your covenant with Noah and its relevance in our lives today. Grant us insight into your promises of preservation and your promises of blessing. May our time in your word this Lord's Day deepen our appreciation for your faithfulness, for your mercy, your love, your, your working through history to bring us into your eternal rest. 
And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So with the revised outline, we're going to go back to the very beginning, right? And in these first seven verses here, we, we hear this echo, or at least I, I hope you hear the echo that we saw at the, at the creation, right, with Adam. And, 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 and many actually see this as a renewal of the covenant made with Adam here at the beginning. Well, only they're not the exact same words, are they, right? That's because Adam, uh, Adam dwelt in this sinless paradise. And so God was speaking to him in the context of, of that sort of environment. And, and Noah is here. He's walking out of this ark, but he's walking into a world that is still stained by sin, still affected by sin. It's not back to the garden, is it, right? It's, it's still a sinful world. And so the obligations that God gives to all mankind at this point, they don't fit in a utopian garden. They assume a fallen, sin-infested world, the world that you and I live in, the world that you and I know. And, and yes, right, don't, don't let that sway you too far in the sense of the world we live in is beautiful. It is awe-inspiring. There are so many joy-inducing things in the world that we live, but it is also a world of conflict, of selfishness, of violence, a world that is corrupted by sin, and a world indwelled with people who are corrupted by sin, including you and I. And, and nevertheless, God gives three obligations to everyone who bears his image here. And, and the first is, is really just, again, the restoration of the creation mandate that God gave Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? Collectively, they are called to marry, to, to make love, to give birth, to, to fill the earth with more people, more people made in the image of God. Even in our sinful state, right, God values life. He wants to see us flourish as, as a people. And, and maybe you notice, right, right, that's a shortened version of the original creation mandate, right? If you've read recently back in Genesis 1, 128, uh, it's, it's, you can look back if you want, Genesis 128. And, and, and this time, right, God omits the subduing of the earth. He omits the dominion o over the animals. It is not because those things aren't, aren't so. Uh, but with the words of the Lord, uh, you know, in Genesis 9-2, it becomes why those are left out here. And that's because this relationship between mankind and, and the animals has changed. It has changed because of sin. L look at verse 2. Now God says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every animal. Now Adam and Eve, they experience harmony with, with all the creatures. You remember in Genesis 2 when he goes to name them? He's not hunting them down and chasing them the way we, we do it today, trying to, to find animals and categorize, you know, categorize them and stuff. The animals came to him, and he names them. That's sort of harmony, and, and that harmony is gone at this point. That's what sin does to relationships all over the place. Now, God has given the animals this instinctive fear of mankind. And some mornings we can look in our backyard or even our front yard because we have that bur oak out there. And, and these deer will have wandered into the yard and they're beautiful, but you can't just go out there and have a conversation with them. You can't go pet them. They're incredibly skittish, right? They scurry off the moment you go towards them. Uh, there's other animals like bears and bison, right? The, the fear that they have of us causes them to actually attack people at times. There are certainly domesticated exceptions to this, right? Our, our seven-pound chihuahua, he peacefully cuddles in our, our, our daughter's bed at night. He doesn't, I mean, I guess he is kind of afraid sometimes, to be fair, right? But we see horses, we see ostriches, the, the ostriches, they can be ridden. Uh, you, you see it in the case of, of house cats, right? They, they've even managed to make humans their servants. So switch that around, and if you have a cat, you know. Now, yeah, how we relate to domesticated animals, if, if anything, it's just a small taste of how Adam and Eve would have related to 
the most dangerous of all creatures in the garden. Now there's another significance here. In the garden, in Genesis 1.29, God gave mankind every plant for food to eat. That's what he gave them. But now in Genesis 9.3, what do you see? God says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Right? Snails, escargot, house cats. I don't know about that. Um, but, you know, it raises this question. Was, was everyone a vegetarian before this moment? Well, I know you guys, you love your meat. I know you love your heart disease. It often comes with that. I know it's hard for you to imagine that this could possibly be this, Eden could possibly be this paradise if on the menu wasn't steak and barbecue and things like that. But, but yeah, most likely Adam and Eve in the garden would have been vegetarians. That was part of what they were given they could take, uh, right? They wouldn't have gone beyond that. However, it is very likely that, that after being expelled from the garden that people were, in fact, eating meat. Now, after all, you think about uh, what, what Abel was doing, right? He was raising these sheep, and it wasn't like a sheep-cuddling ranch that he's running. We, we know that he was killing them. They were, he sacrificed sheep. He's even bringing to God, we're even told, the fatty portions, and the whole point, that's the good tasty part uh, that he brings to the Lord, and the Lord received it at that point. Uh, what we see here is God giving a more official permission to eat the flesh of the creatures. But since they already were doing that, the real point here is that God wants, to, wants this to be done in a particular way. You can't just do that any way you want. He wants you to do it in a way that shows honor to the giver of life by honoring the life of the animal, even, even the life of an animal. Now, in Eden, God permitted man from, from eating, you know, just from one tree, the tree in the middle, the... Uh, uh, but in verse 4 here, God gives a new prohibition that is regarding food. In, in this case, you see what God says there. You, you can eat an animal, but you shall not eat the flesh with its life. That is its blood, in case you're not sure what its life means. Now, I know some of you like to eat your steak mostly raw, where it's dripping with red. It looks like it, no one's, maybe it touched the grill for a little second. Um, is, is that what we're talking about? Is that a wrong, sinful way to eat steak? Um, I wish that's what it was saying here, because if I admit, right, uh, I am one of those people that prefers my, uh, my steak fajitas to actually be cooked before I stick them in my mouth, and if I can make a theological argument that, that made it where all of you would match my culinary preferences, I would absolutely love to do that, that would be great, but alas, that's not what's going on here. Uh, it, it's not about how some of you are eating these grossly undercooked cows. The, the point here is, is you don't eat like an animal, like, like a wild animal just ripping into it. And you know, when cattle are even slaughtered today, they get hung up by their hind legs, and because of this miracle we call gravity, all their blood, or most of their blood, will, will be drained from their carcass. That's the picture that's going on here. Now, and included in this is a, a general respect for animal life. They, they are given for us to eat. Yes, you have freedom to do that, but, but not to torture them. And there's an honorable way for us to eat an animal. Now, this prohibition against eating the blood helps us also understand this connection that we're going to see later on in, in greater detail uh, about blood and life going hand in hand uh, in the way the sacrificial system meet, works and ultimately, right, points to the atoning work that, that Jesus does as, as Hebrews 9.22 states, right, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And, and that connection as we go through the Old Testament will begin, begin to come clear. Now, notice the idea of of lifeblood here is carrying over into verses 5 and 6 as God makes abundantly clear that human life has great value, right? We think we all agree with that as a general thing. We don't always think through what that means, but human life has great value. You see that here in the instance 
uh, in both instances of that word reckoning that you see there, right? The first instance is, is painting this picture that an animal actually kills a human. Well, what do we do, right? It's just an animal. It wasn't premeditated, but, but we were told what to do. It is actually taking a human life, and so that animal is to be put to death. And notice, God doesn't say, you're permitted to, if you feel like it, if you want to, if you think this will help you get over this, right, you can do it, but they are actually required to do so. That's the reckoning. Now, the second instance of the word reckoning is about one person murdering another person. And again, God requires the life of the one who commits the murder here. In verse 6, God is very explicit when he says, whoever sheds the blood of a man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. You and I, we, we, we cannot kill another human being without answering to God. Not just others, but to God ultimately. And this, this will later become uh, the sixth commandment, right? You shall not murder. And this idea that we're, we're seeing here, as, as it's spoken here in, in Genesis 9, is very reminiscent of that phrase, you know, an, an eye for an eye, and most of us don't really care for that, right? Uh, it, it comes from Exodus 21, 23, where we read, uh, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And again, we don't love that because where's the mercy in that? Now, you've got to understand this in the, in the wider context, right? An eye for an eye is about justice being proportionate to the crime that's actually committed. You remember Lamech, right? Uh, bad Lamech in Cain's evil line, right? He sang that song that basically, you hurt me a little bit, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to do something 77 times worse than what you did to me, right? That's, that is disproportionate justice, which is really not justice at all. So, so why is life so important here then, right? The, the reason is right there at the end of verse 6. We hear it all the time, so much so that I'm afraid it becomes almost white noise to us, right? But it's important because uh, God made man in his own image. One of the aspects of that is that we are not just the result of some random evolution that just happened to be, oh, look, there's people eventually, random, right? When there is, you know... If that were the case, then there wouldn't be any intrinsic value in humanity. The, the stronger should win, right? The weaker, you know, die and, and carry on, and that's the way you might view life. But, but the truth is, we were and are created by God in His very image. And yes, since the fall, we are corrupted by sin, and yet we are still image bearers of God. You know, we, we are distinct from animals. We, we possess a, a sense of morality and ethics. We have intellectual reasoning ability. We can be creative. You have an eternal soul. You have an eternal soul that cannot even be destroyed by death. And so does every man, woman, and child. And that's true regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their citizenship, regardless of their faith, regardless of their political ideology, or any other distinctions that we like to make. Now, now then, one application of these two verses is, is capital punishment. It's what we call the death penalty. And I know this is not a, a, always a popular idea, even among Christians, I'll admit. Uh, and just in my own thinking, I don't like the idea of capital punishment, and I'll tell you why, because the, the jury might be wrong. Right? And because I want every sinner to have as much time as possible to repent before they're going to stand before a holy God as a sinner. That they have the opportunity for that. But, but the word of God here and in other places require that, that I actually submit my own preferences to God's word. We see this. 
And like most things, it's not always as black and white as we'd like it to be. Later in the Old Testament, there are even distinctions made between causing accidental death and premeditated murder and the way those things are handled. Now, another application here is that the requirement for justice for murder, uh, it lays the foundation of some form of government, right? It's not that all of us go out and just go get our revenge and ex execute justice on our own, right? You, you see there in verse 6, though, that, that uh, you know, by man shall his blood be shed. And again, it's not personal vengeance here because it's important that, that the punishment be justly administered. And you and I both know when it's dealt out by an individual who's been wrong in some way, it is rarely justly administered. Uh, thus, as, as Richard Phillips says here, he says, Man must therefore erect civil structures whose design is to defend, preserve, and promote the flourishing of human life. From this mandate flows the practical value of government officials, police officers to preserve human life from violence, armies to defend citizens from foreign attack, and with all these, of course, the taxes needed to provide these God-given tasks. And you can learn more about the role of government all throughout the scripture, but particularly our call to be subject to the government in Romans 13, where, by the way, the, you know, it's written to Christians that are living under the, the Roman Empire where, where rule was, was, was executed or done by incredibly evil empires, or emperors, rather. So, um, I, and I say that because, you know, you, you want to be able to relate to it, and I think we do relate to that when, you know, we live in an area, an era of time when there are judicial abuses. You know, the, the justice system is indeed flawed, doesn't mean it needs to be thrown out, but it's flawed, right? And, and sometimes it's even politically or racially driven. The abuses of, of justice are an abomination before the Lord. To, to again quote Richard Phillips, he says, Woe to a system that wrongly administers the death penalty. Woe to the society who allows that to happen. Woe to judges who are culpable. God will not be mocked. And yet we must continue to seek obedience to God here. Not to throw it all out, but to seek a way to do this in a way that it's, is honorable and right to the Word of God. Now, as we see here how highly God values life, I think as God's people, it should drive us to value life too. In fact, one of the most significant messages that we as Christians living in this secular society today is, is, is that we proclaim this, this truth, right, is, is that all human life has dignity and has value. And yes, of course, this means standing up for the, the lives of unborn babies. But it also, that we value life everywhere else we see it, right? The, the life of the elderly, the life of those with special needs, those in poverty, children who are in un, unsafe homes, women who are facing domestic abuse, uh, you know, those who are pondering suicide in their life, even basic access to health care, and those who have suffered, you know, injustice in our justice system. And I, I say this, right, church, let us... Let us learn to, to, to more widely, more fully, better value and show dignity to all who are made in the image of God. And you don't have to buy any one system that you're being told is the way to do it, but, but that we do value life as something that God calls us to. Now, now, now then, let, let's turn our attention, and there's a bit of a, a shift here that happens at verse 8, right? Because the second half of this passage is this more uh, official, right? The, the covenant that the Lord is establishing here. Uh, if you've been around here long, you know we use the word covenant a lot. Uh, we speak of our covenant children. We speak of covenant baptism. We, we speak of the, the, the church, the body of Christ, right, as a, a covenant community or a covenant family. Now, uh, the Latin word for covenant is, is testamentum. Uh, and I, I ask that because I want you to know, does that sound familiar to you? 
Uh, you just take the U-M off at the end, right? It begins to sound familiar, right? Your, your Bible is divided into two basic sections. You'll find these title pages at each of them, right? The Old Testament and the New Testamentum, if you want to go Latin. And, and so hopefully you hear it, right? The more literally your Bible is divided into the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And, and this is because each is a testimony of God's covenantal dealings with his people, the way he relates to them. Now, in, in Scripture... Covenants are how God establishes a relationship with his people. In simple terms, covenants are, are a lot like a contract, just to give you something to, to think through that understands it. Like, you know, when you buy a house and you buy a car, there's that contract. We'll give you the car, and you're going to give us money every month for the next, I don't know, long time. Now, for Christians, marriage is a covenant. It establishes a legal relationship between a man and a woman. It prescribes privileges and, and obligations and a faithfulness expectation there. And God's covenants are similar and, and yet different from human covenants or contracts. Uh, first of all, God's covenants are sovereignly administered. And what I mean by that is, is we don't initiate these, these covenants. It is God who initiates them with them. We, we don't negotiate the terms of these, right? We, we don't come to this covenant thing and like, well, all right, we're hearing you. Okay, God, but um, we'll be your people, but we, here's what we're going to need from you. Not just one Sabbath. We're really wanting the two Sabbath thing. Can you include that? And maybe throw in a gym membership too. Uh, we don't negotiate with God on these covenants. He is the Lord. He imposes the terms and we simply receive them, which is not what you want with a business partner, but it is absolutely what you need God to be. And secondly, God's covenants come in different forms. Sometimes the obligations are, are one way, and, and we'll see that in the Noetic Covenant today, and sometimes they're, they're conditional. Sometimes there are blessings uh, of the covenant and cursings for disobeying the covenant, right? Blessings for obeying and cursings for disobeying. And, and while they're all a little different, God's covenants are a, a, a thread of continuity, right? A, a continuous thing that running through the scriptures, leading us to Jesus and his saving work upon the cross. Now there are a number of covenants uh, and covenant renewals in the scripture. Let me, let me lay out a few of the major ones for you. The, the first one we've already seen as it was established with Adam. It's, its fancy name is the Adamic covenant. You just put IC on the end of it, right, to get to your fancy name there. You'll see this in some of the other ones as well. It's, it's also known as the covenant of works. Uh, that's what the Westminster Confession calls it. And not because it lacks grace, right, but because the promise for Adam and for Eve was conditional upon them continually keeping, uh, being obedient to the expectations there. In other words, don't eat the forbidden fruit and you will live forever. And if you continue to not eat the forbidden fruit, you'll continue to live forever. But if you disobey and eat the fruit, you will die. And you know how that ended. We've seen that. Right? They ate the fruit and they died, first spiritually and eventually they died physically as well. And, and, and then you have our covenant today. This is the, the Noahic covenant, right? Just add the IC there and you sound theological. Um, and we'll come back to that one. Uh, later God will establish the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, and you know who that's from because you know how to do this. Now it's Abraham. And then my favorite sounding covenant is the Mosaic covenant. And, and that's with, you got a little trickier, right, because it changes a little, but that is with Moses. And then the Davidic covenant with David. And, and finally, Jesus mediates the most significant covenant, but, but we don't call it the Jesus-ic covenant, uh, thankfully, because that's hard to say. We, we call it by the name that, 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 that is given in Jeremiah 31, 31, which refers to it as the new covenant. 
Now, to be fair, we, we do also often refer to it as the covenant of grace because that's, that's really the heart of the new covenant. Um, but let's come back to the, the Noahic, Noahic covenant here, right? Uh, who's it made with? Uh, obviously, Noah's part of this, right? Uh, he mediates the covenant. That's the, God, the one individual who God interacts with. Uh, but if you look at, well, verses 8, 9, 12, 15, 17, just about any of them, uh, you're going to see over and over, right? It's made with Noah, yes. It's made with Noah's descendants, yes. But it's also with every living creature. It is made with all of creation, it says, all flesh, right? And this is unique because this is the only of the major covenants that isn't made exclusively with God's chosen elect people. In other words, to use the terms that we learned last week, this is a covenant of common grace rather than a covenant of special grace, which is what the other ones are. It's kind of like the obligations we learned in verses 1 through 7, right? They're sort of a natural law for all of humanity, not, not just for one nation, not just for the nation of Israel. Uh, you know, and, and that's going to be true later on, right? As many of, of God's laws are going to be limited to the nation the state of Israel. Not just, you know, and not just Christ's church as, as his people as we are today. What, what I mean is that the blessings of the Noetic covenant are enjoyed by all people. In every single era, in every nation, whether they care at all, whether they even know it's happening, they enjoy the blessings of this. There's no opting into it. There's no condition that needs to be met. The blessings belong to all flesh, and that's the way the Lord establishes this. And, and what are the blessings that God is promising in the Noahic covenant? It's a big one that we really take for granted, that God will not flood the earth uh, again, thus killing everyone, right? That is a big one. Um, God promises to sustain human life here on earth. That, that, that God's mercy will remain even, even as we as humanity collectively and individually prove over and over again we are incredibly evil and you'd be absolutely justified in drowning us all in the flood again. God promises here, right, sovereignly, unilaterally, unconditionally to preserve life upon the earth. And this brings us to the last section then, verses 17, or 12 to 17, and, and there's incredible redundancy here. You might have noticed that when I was reading it, right, it's like over and over, and you're like, yeah, we got it, keep going. Uh, but it's, it, the redundancy here is that the, the promise is for all people, including animals. But it also talks about a, a sign. You, you see, God's covenants usually have a, a, a visual sign that's attached to them that, that certifies the covenant. Some of these covenantal signs are, are, you know, more fun than others of them, right? The, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision, that's obviously on the low scale. That's this way, right? The low scale of the fun scale. Uh, the, the point, though, was, was marking God's people as, as separate, right? They're, they're cut off and separate from the world. You know, the sign of the Mosaic Covenant is the Sabbath day. That's quite a bit better than the circumcision. Uh, the sign of the New Covenant, you know, are, are two sacraments, right? sacraments today, right? The, uh, the initiation sign of baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in the Lord's Supper, we partake in, right, as a, uh, the, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus as we reflect on our union with Christ and our, our union with one another because of that union with Christ. Now, the sign of the Noahic Covenant is a rainbow. And the rainbow is certainly more fun than circumcision, but I think less than Sacri uh, Sabbath day, anyway. Uh, sadly, the, the rainbow has been misappropriated by the, the LGBTQ movement in our day, and, and yet, in one sense, that's kind of fitting, right? Since the rainbow was a covenant that God has made with all flesh. Even 
the most God-rejecting, sin-embracing image bearers that might be out there. And yet, since it belongs to all of creation, you, you Christian, don't be afraid of the rainbow, as, as is often the case today. You can wear all the rainbow you want. You know, let God define what the rainbow means. And, and I have an old school Apple logo on my MacBook. And if you know what that means, it's a rainbow in the shape of the Apple logo. Um, and I've had a few people in coffee shops that don't know that's the history of Apple. Uh, and, and after assuming stuff about me, right, they'll sit down and I've had some incredibly great conversations. And I'm, I'm really grateful for it, right? So I kind of encourage you, just put it on there and you'll have some good conversations. Now, when we think about, you know, when we see rainbows, you, you, you know, what do we think about, right? When do we see them? It's, it, it's during or after the rain is falling. It's right in that context that, that the original, that the flood came, right? It's a, it's a beautiful reminder that God will not flood the earth again. The, the, uh, the other aspect of the rainbow is, is that the word here, and you, you can see this in the ESV, I'm not sure what the NASB says, but uh, technically speaking, it's not rainbow, it's simply bow, or, or my bow is the way it's put here, right? In, in the Hebrew, it's, it's the same word as, as the archer's weapon, right? The kind of thing Link would use, or any archer, right? A, it's a bow and arrow is the image here, and, and some believe, and I'm convinced of this, that the shape of the bow aiming upwards is, is symbolic of God taking his bow and, and hanging it up, right? That it's, it's going out of use, it's being put away, and that, that God's just wrath will not be poured out on all of creation for sin, not, not now, um, not while the earth remains. And, and, and that fits the theme of this covenant. Uh, some further see it as a, a foreshadowing of the cross, that, that Jesus will receive the wrath that you and I deserve upon the cross. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and in that case, the, 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 the way it is in the sky, when you look at it, is a bow that's actually aiming upwards towards God himself, right? And in that sense, the rainbow is God's promise of life, and it will cost God, the Son, his own life to fulfill that promise. And while the rainbow reminds us of God's promise here, God in this passage explicitly says more than once, you can see it there in verse 15 though, right? That the rainbow is for God to remember his covenant. And again, we're seeing this a lot, right? But it's, it's put in terms that you and I can understand as, as humans, right? This is God stooping for us. Now, and it's not that God forgets the covenant. You know, God's not thinking, oh man, I was just about to flood them again. But then the rainbow showed up and I remembered. I said I wouldn't do this. It's, it's, and that's not the picture here, right? The, the point of God saying this, well, here, let me put it the way Charles Spurgeon does it because he does it beautiful. He says, it's not my remembering God, it's God remembering me. That's the ground of my safety. It's, it's not my laying hold of his covenant. It's his covenants laying hold of me. Glory be to God. And so more of the way we should respond to this is when you, you and I see the rainbow, that should, you know, you should remember that God sees it too. You should remember that God keeps his promise. You know, that he sees it and he'll keep his promise. He will continue to show mercy to the earth and all of her inhabitants. And so, the next question is, how long is this covenant valid for? When does this expire? And if you look at verse 16, you see God calls it an everlasting covenant. That's from this Hebrew word, olam, right? Or olam, O-L-A-M. And it, it doesn't mean everlasting like, like for all of eternity, endlessly in that sense. It's, it's more like Wonka uses it, right? The everlasting gobstopper. It doesn't last forever, but for the foreseeable future, a really, really, really long time. Or, or has God really, you know, put it just before this in Genesis 18, or 8, 22, while the earth remains. And so there is a time period for this. 
forever, but forever as long as the earth remains. And, and my point is God's mercy in this covenant is wonderful. But the promise here isn't that God doesn't care about sin. Don't hear that. It's not like he's like, y'all going to sin anyway. I don't care anymore. Do what you're going to do. I'll be over there. Right? That's not what's going on here. It's not that he's never going to deal with sin. God will one day take that bow off the wall again. He will pick up his bow. His justice and his wrath will be administered. In fact, we confess that in the Apostles' Creed, that, that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. And listen, not a single soul was redeemed through the Noahic Covenant. Right? You look at what it is. Lives were saved. Life going on, generation to generations is preserved, but not a single soul is saved. And listen, right? And the, the only redemptive aspect here is that it provides for successive covenants that unfold through history. It, it makes way for the coming of Jesus. It makes way for the cross and the empty tomb and, and the spreading of the gospel around the world to, to you and to me and, and through you to others. You see, this covenant is still in effect. And, and the world we live in is incredibly sinful. You know this. You know this because you see it and you know this because we're all part of that. And, and, and Noah's sinful too. And we're going to see that next week. You think, oh, here's this redo, right? How great, what kind of wonderful things are going to come from this reset? And it doesn't last very long at all. We're going to see it next week. And, and yet, you see, unless Jesus returns, the, the sun is going to come up tomorrow because God continues to keep this covenant. It's going to come up because God continues to patiently show mercy to his creation. And so here's the thing. Be thankful for the rainbow. Be, be thankful for God's covenant with Noah. Be thankful for the days of sunshine that follow the rain. For the gospel that you know. For the gospel that others need you to share with them. And, and let us as God's people make the most of these days of mercy. Right? If you think back to the earlier section, right? Some of these things is this. Just learn to love the Lord in these days. Learn to value life. Learn to, to share the hope of the gospel with others. Right? That's, that's, that's the simple application of a passage like this. Now let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks for your word. There is so much here for us to learn and, and to really ponder and apply. So please fill our, our hearts with gratitude, for great is your faithfulness, Lord, and your mercies, they are new every morning. And Lord, we thank you for the mercy of life, but even more so, we thank you for the mercy that is ours in Jesus, for sins forgiven, for grace promised, for, for grace coming, living among us, dying upon the cross, and raising to everlasting life. May we collectively live in obedience to your commands in this passage. May we be encouraged whenever we see the rainbow, for, for we know that you remember your covenant, this one and, and all others. And, and we, you know, we, we know that even now that you will preserve life on this big blue planet that we call home until you call us home. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all this. Amen.